Welcome back to Primer, the podcast about all things Amazon. I'm your host, Alex Press, joined as ever by my producer, Sarah Hurd. Before we get into this week's episode, let me do my spiel about subscribing. I keep all the episodes of Primer free because I want everyone to be able to access them. But to compensate me for the project and encourage me to spend more time on it, I have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Primer podcast. If you sign up, the episodes are all up there, but you'll also get show notes as well as video of some of our interviews. Of course, you'll also get my eternal gratitude. To the 83 people who have subscribed, thanks so much. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash Primer podcast. I'll also tell you here that after this episode, we're taking a two-week break from the show. I have a few other projects to focus on, and I know both Sarah and myself could use a little time to enjoy the last bit of the summer. We'll be back in September, and of course, if you haven't listened to the episodes that came before this one, you can listen to those in the meantime, either on the Patreon or by searching for Jacobin Radio on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. Now, last week we had Lauren Kaori Gurley, a journalist, on to discuss some recent stories in the ever-changing universe of Amazon.com. This week, we're taking a step back. I've been wanting to do a historical episode for a while now. The reason is that a lot of discussion of Amazon and of many tech companies operates in a sort of perpetual present. These companies claim they're new, unprecedented, entirely different from anything that came before. But that's false. As you've heard by now, Amazon's innovation is largely about pushing workers harder, along with building out infrastructure that should be public as a private enterprise. But sometimes those of us interested in organizing against these companies also untether ourselves from what came before. In the case of organizing Amazon, it can at times feel like not only an impossible task, but a fight so big as to have never been tried before. In reality, there have been industries and even specific companies as dominant and important to the economy as Amazon. Industries that drove their workers into the ground, but which those workers eventually nonetheless organized, winning better wages and working conditions. It is almost always a supremely messy process of organizing a company like Amazon, one full of losses before wins and one that can take years or even decades to complete. To put the task of organizing Amazon into this historical context, I called up Michael Goldfield. Mike is a former labor and civil rights activist and professor emeritus at Wayne State University and associated with the Fraser Center at Wayne State. He is a political scientist and labor historian, someone whose work explores the messiness that is worker organization, detailing battles in the past, delving into the archives to rescue a picture of how historic union organizing campaigns really looked at the ground level. In addition to a host of academic articles, his books include The Decline of Organized Labor in the United States and The Color of Politics, Race in the Mainsprings of American Politics. Most recently, he wrote The Southern Key, Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 40s. That last one came out in 2020, and it's a fascinating look at union organizing in the South, a region that today remains extremely hard to unionize. Before we created this show, I had interviewed Mike about the book in the context of the then-ongoing union drive in Bessemer, Alabama. Bessemer had once been a steel and mining region, which was part of the context of the Amazon union drive. In the Southern Key, Mike has a chapter on steel organizing, and while I was reading it, Amazon came to mind. Some people, in thinking about historical precedents to what organizing Amazon would look like, reach for the auto industry, and specifically the Ford Motor Company, as a point of comparison. But auto doesn't feel quite right to me. For starters, Ford's River Rouge plant, this massive shop, was a single workplace that contained a huge percentage of all of Ford's workers, which meant that organizers could focus on that one place, as hard as it was. Amazon doesn't have such a location. It's all relatively smaller warehouses and distribution centers. Auto, as Mike mentions in our conversation, also had a lot of small parts distributors and shops, which were organized along the way. Amazon, not so much. 
Steel, however, may have a few more similarities and prove a fruitful industry to consider when imagining how to organize Amazon. So to go into that thesis, I talked to Mike. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. So my thinking in doing this episode is that, you know, people are searching for historical comparisons to Amazon's role in the U.S. economy, not just as a scholarly question, but as organizers thinking about how to approach the idea of organizing Amazon, which people are starting to talk about a lot more. Um, The auto industry sometimes comes up as a possible historical precedent. After all, Fordism was to its era what some sort of consider Amazon to be to the present or the near future. So I want to ask you about the steel industry, and in particular, certain steel companies, how they compare to the warehousing and logistics industry and Amazon specifically. So I I think the comparison to the auto industry isn't strictly a good one. So the auto industry had lots of small companies, particularly organizing parts and some skilled venues. And these were, in fact, where the earliest organizing took place. Steel, on the other hand, because of the technology, the industry required enormous installations, and it was dominated by only a small number of companies. The biggest one was U.S. Steel, which had about 40% of the employees and 40% of the industry. And even the so-called small or little steel industries were enormous and were funded by the biggest banks of that error. So workers had a great deal of difficulty getting off the ground, what I call takeoff in terms of organizing, because the companies were so huge. There were so many workers who had to be contacted and the companies themselves had enormous resources to legally and illegally fight any worker activities. They had huge spy systems. Uh, They controlled the areas. So, for example, many of the auto companies were in Detroit, which is a big city where the auto companies didn't have the control that a company could have in small towns. So we, we, we look at these small areas where steel existed. And you mentioned Pittsburgh, where you are. The steel mills were not in Pittsburgh. They were along the river's outside of Pittsburgh. And these towns were completely controlled. The police departments Um, the elected officials, everything else were controlled by steel. And in some sense, this is more comparable to the situation of Amazon warehouses. Uh, They're not generally in the middle of big cities. They're outside them. Um, Amazon has a great deal of control of the politics. Um, As we saw in Bessemer, they were able to get the mailboxes put inside the plant, that doesn't happen in a big city. And and so there are many people who look at the steel and they say, well, the workers weren't that militant. They didn't strike to the degree that coal miners did. But the difficulties of getting things together, um, you had to have a huge amount of momentum in steel. And when they finally did get it together, the strikes were massive. Um, but it took a much longer time. So in the beginning of the Depression in the early 1930s, um, there was very little activity going on in steel. It was very difficult for them to get going. A lot of secret small group organizing, um, people putting out newsletters in the plant, talking to people in their homes, that type of thing. Right. 
And I want to, for people who aren't so familiar with how the steel industry sort of is exists and was distributed, you know, you say these were big plants, even the small ones were a lot of workers. You know, what, how many people were working in steel, you know, across the country? What were the numbers at its height? When was its height? And then what did the actual individual steel mills, you know, hold as far as number of people? So um, there were, there were maybe... Um, Six six hundred thousand steel workers in the com- in the country. Um, many of the steel, the bigger steel mills, had as many as thirty thousand workers. So we're talking huge, and other ones had ten, twelve, fifteen thousand workers. So, for example, one um, place that I'd like to talk about is the Jones and Laughlin company, which is not one of the big names like U.S. Steel um, or some of the some of the other big ones. But they had 10,000 workers in a town called Aliquippa in western Pennsylvania along the Monongahela River. They controlled the town. They controlled the town around there. So, for example, there were 30,000 registered Republicans. This is in a steel town and 25 registered Democrats. So no steel worker even dared to support, and this is during the New Deal, dared register and vote for Roosevelt in the early 1930s. In this town, steel worker, more conservative steel worker officials looked and said, well, the workers aren't doing anything. And then one day um, in early 1937, all 8,000 workers struck. They had picket lines of several thousand workers. The police couldn't get through. They ended up disappearing after two hours. There were just too many workers there. Um, so the organization took place um, like a snowball in a sense. And I have descriptions of some of the steel workers officials saying how the workers were passive and nothing would happen. And then Three weeks later, everybody's amazed at what these workers were able to do. And I would distinguish this from smaller places, particularly coal mines, for example. Coal miners were active very early, but coal mines typically have several hundred, maybe a really big coal mine has a thousand people. And there's huge number were huge numbers of coal companies during this time, like over a thousand companies. So Workers, by controlling one or several mines, had leverage over the company. In in steel, particularly with U.S. steel, workers did not have leverage over the company by just organizing one plant or even in one area. And this is the same with Amazon. Um, So even a big distribution center like the one the retail workers tried to organize in Bessemer, Alabama, with 6,000 workers, that's in contrast to the seven or 800,000 workers in warehouses and distribution centers that Amazon has. So uh, you need a lot of momentum to break through. Clearly, the small organizing that's going on at several groups, including um, people fr- from Amazon United, are working on lay the groundwork for that. But it takes a while for that to ferment in a big uh, company like Amazon. Right. I mean, this is another reason that I think it's useful to dig into the how steel organizing was sort of thought about. So William Z. Foster, 
um, led the sort of an early wave of this organizing 1918 and then a big strike in steel in 1919. He was a Communist Party leader. And he would talk about the need to organize, you know, at the scale of across the nation, right, rather than shop by shop. And then John Lewis in the 1930s takes this up sort of as a strategy, right? And so I think if you could just lay out some of that history for people who aren't familiar with it, because Again, it's useful, right, in, for the reasons you laid out. That one shop at Amazon is, you know, 5,000 people, 6,000 people, and that's a drop in the bucket compared to six or 700,000. And so people are sort of thinking through these questions of how, you know, if we have to organize everywhere, don't we have to start at the one-by-one one basis? So I think, you know, thinking about how those debates played out almost 100 years ago now might be illuminating for people. Foster in 1919 um was involved with the American Federation of Labor in Chicago, which was the more radical center for um, the AFL, the American Federation of Labor. And he was given support to organize steel. He spent a lot of time trying to get the AFL nationally on record. They went on record. Nobody contributed any money. These were all craft unions. Uh, many of them were racially discriminatory. There were a lot of black workers in steel, particularly in the Chicago area. And these worker, the, these craft unions didn't allow black members even. But F- Foster presented a plan to organize everywhere at once, to have a sort of a blitz campaign to take the whole industry by storm. And he believed that workers were ready for this. So... Without the resources, they started in the Chicago area, where Foster and his group were based. They organized there, but they couldn't get through in in the Pittsburgh area, which was the biggest center of the um, steel industry at that time. The strike took place um, all over the country, but it was uneven in terms of the support it had. Lots of people, particularly in the Pittsburgh area, were killed by steel company police. Um, It was a very violent strike, and the violence took place uh, at the initiative of the companies. So the strike was eventually defeated because it didn't have, in part because it didn't have broad enough uh, support. So Foster, Foster wrote a book on the steel strike. And then he also wrote something in the mid-30s about how steel could be organized. And the more conservative people, and John Lewis was the head of miners' union, is sort of a contradictory character, willing to work with radicals and communists at times, sometimes conservative. He had supported Herbert Hoover. Um, But he knew that he needed to work with the communists, and and they liked... um, Foster's approach. So they hired people in every steel center, many of them communists and other radicals. Um, and they they began organizing all over. They made alliances with key civil rights um, organizations, particularly the National Negro Congress and secondarily the NAACP. Um, They had strong alliances with ethnic and immigrant organizations, uh, many of whom had halls in these steel towns. And so they did this all over the country simultaneously. 
Um, nothing magical happened initially, but eventually steelworkers all over the country were very active. Um, they, their strategy was multi-pronged. They organized groups. They organized within the old uh, craft union, the Amalgamate Association of Iron Workers, Iron and Steel Workers. Uh, and they also organized within company unions, which the steel industry in particular had set up in order to co-op worker militancy. So they did all these things simultaneously. And eventually strikes and organizing started taking place um, throughout the industry. Some of them were successful at U.S. Steel. The organizing was so intense that the company just recognized the union after the Flint strike because they were worried that workers were going to seize their steel steel plants. Um, in some of the other steel companies, employers were more resistant. Um, at Republic Steel, one of the plants that was in Chicago itself on the south side, they got the Chicago police to break up a Labor Day picnic and to fire on women, children, and strikers who were picnicking in front of the plant. And that pretty much undermined organizing in that company. And some of that had to wait till um, the economy picked up when World War II, production for World War II started. So even in steel, it was uneven. But uh, the most important thing is that the breakthroughs were big and dramatic because little things couldn't get any leverage in uh, big workplaces and big companies like existed in steel. And in some ways, that's similar to the situation um, in Amazon. There, as you know, I mean, you've written some of the best stuff on the Amazon campaign in Bessemer and the, the degree to which they employed legal and illegal tactics um, put a lot of pressure on workers, convinced them that if they voted for a union, they might pull the warehouse and put it someplace else and everybody would lose their jobs. Um, so they instilled a lot of fear in workers. And because they're such a big, powerful companies, many workers believe that voting for the union might end up hurting them um, and that the company would do some of the bad things that they said they were going to do. So, uh, and I think that that's, there's some similarities to what happened um, in steel and the type of control that Amazon and steel companies had in these, many of these communities. Right. And I think to go back a little bit, to the steel history, I also want to ask you about what it was like working at the steel mills before they were organized. So a previous guest of the show, Alec McGillis, who's written a book about Amazon called Fulfillment, he talked about this because he wrote a lot in the book about Sparrows Point, which was the site of a big steel mill and now is the site of several Amazon warehouses. And he actually found a worker who had worked in steel and now was working at Amazon. Um, and Alec talked a little bit about you know, that steel, there was nothing innate in the job itself that made it, say, better in any sense, pay physical well-being than an Amazon warehouse. It was the fact that it had been organized. So in your book, you write about how bad the working conditions were before 
the, the steel industry got organized. And I wanted you to just talk a little bit about that and then what the unions won. Well, one of the things that people complained about much is that there were 12 hour shifts. And at the it's interesting that at the beginning of World War II, the steel industries were were forced to contract the hours that they made people work because the Defense Department wouldn't pay, wouldn't assign uh, products to be made in any industry where workers worked more than 60 hours a week. And the average in steel, the hours were more than in any other major industry in the country. So the long hours were one thing. Um, It was not just pay. Safety conditions were horrible. Um, and I were actually worked in the steel industry in Northern Indiana for Inland Steel in, let's see, 1971. And they had the, the safety th- things were arcane and the company was always blaming workers for anything that happened. So we had a thing in the plant where I worked, which had about 12,000 workers at the time where a guardrail broke. It was made of wood and the wood was rotten. And a couple workers fell into a vat of molten steel and disappeared. And when the company safety people came, the first question they were asking was whether the workers had on their safety shoes and safety helmets. Um, as if that had anything to do with the accident that, um, that happened. So steel had... Um, Lots of people killed by things that fell on them. Uh, so, so safety was an issue as well. And the other thing is certain parts of the steel wheel are very, very hot. Um, workers passed out from the heat. They're, they're near um, molten steel, things that get, even after the steel is produced, for their ovens and things get heated up to be tempered. Uh, in sheet mills. So um, these sort of health and safety issues were very important. So one key difference, um, and this didn't exist when I worked in steel, but when I worked later in International Harvester, they were already starting to automate and try to control things. But now, um, and Amazon is at the leading edge of doing this to workers. Every sort of movement that a worker makes, every piece that they move, everything that happens every time they go to the bathroom, uh, go get a drink of water, that's all recorded and tabulated. So there's really little room for anybody to take a deep breath and take a break from the work and the pressure to speed things up in order to get on-time delivery and everything out is very, very intense. Um, and, it, and it's interesting, these demands are common. So I was reading, you're probably familiar with the recent strike at Frito-Lay. Yes, yeah. Uh, so the Frito-Lay workers um, won some wage increases, but the main thing they were saying, they were not being treated like human beings and the forced overtime was making them work 12 hours a day. Some of them hadn't had a break a day off in a month or two. Um, and they claimed that this was an inhuman way to work. 
And that was certainly one of the issues that um, existed in steel. And there's some common thread with the Amazon uh, workers now. I mean, that's, I think that's the biggest complaint when I talk to Amazon workers, um, particularly um, in fulfillment centers, that the pressure of the work is too intense. And there's some, I don't know, speculation, but um, more than speculation, a little bit of evidence that Amazon's plan is to push people to the burning point and to have it and to just burn them out, have them quit and get a new uh, round of people, right? Right, Um, yeah. So um, that seems to be um, part of their strategy. And as long as they can keep hiring people uh, to do that. So I've also talked to a few Amazon drivers and, you know, sometimes the pay like in the warehouses sounds, Oh, they're not getting paid that bad. So in Bessemer, they were getting $15 an hour, but that that's much less than the where than the general warehouse, um, pay even in those areas. And it's the same thing for drivers. Their drivers are paid less and have less benefits than UPS drivers, for example. Right. Yeah, we've definitely talked about on that on the show. The last episode was with the reporter, Lauren Kaori Gurley, who had yeah spoken to many um, delivery drivers who are making, you know, maybe one fourth of what the unionized drivers are making. Um, I I wanted to ask you, you know, in this vein of thinking historically, you know, in the wake of the Bessemer election, union election not going the way, say, uh, the labor movement might have wanted it to go. You know, people are thinking about setbacks and losses. And I wanted to ask you specifically, you know, the 1919 steel strike was not successful in the in, you know, by many senses of that term. Um, And I wanted to ask, you know, what was different by the mid 30s? compared to 1919, again, in the vein of trying to think about sort of a lengthier timeline when we think about organizing something like Amazon. What changed? One important uh, lesson for things that were successful, and you can see this not just in steel, but in auto, um, in meatpacking and slaughtering, in a whole wide range of issues, is that activists stayed in the plan and kept working. The traditional thing that um, mainstream unions did. They would come in when there was a strike or they would aid organizing going on. And then when it was de- a strike was defeated or the organizing failed, they would disappear. And the more activists and more radical people stayed there and kept organizing. So even though lots of people were fired in steel, you had groups throughout the 20s who were organizing um in steel mills, they were organizing inside the um, the craft union, the amalgamated and other craft unions. So they were doing a variety of things to organize and to recruit activist workers. And the same thing was taking place in in uh, in auto, in meat packing. Um, so the stock market crash in 1929. Huge numbers of people were laid off and put on short short hours. Most um, places where people worked, they were not able to organize uh, in that situation, with the exception mostly of coal. 
So a lot of the organizing was taking place outside. There was a massive unemployed movement all across the country, um, people protesting, um, fighting evictions. Large numbers of people would move furniture back in and illegally turn on the utilities um, when uh, farmers couldn't pay their uh, mortgage payments and were foreclosed by banks, armed farmers came to the meetings where the auctions were to take place. And the famous thing was that they engaged in what are called penny sales. One member of the group would bid a penny at the auction and the guns would all be up and nobody else would bid. Uh, and the farmer would get there. So there was a lot of activity taking place and it took a but the economy started picking up in 1933, 1934, and this led to um, much more excitement and empowerment uh, of workers in certain places. Um, and that's when the strikes and union growth really began to, to happen. And this is a general phenomenon that we see that union growth takes place massively um, at certain times, things go along for long periods of time, not much happens. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's an explosion. So to give you some figures from 1933 to 1945, union membership in the United States went up from 3 million to 15 million, roughly. Uh, same thing happened during World War One when production um went up because we were supplying Europe and then eventually the U.S. military with all sorts of goods. So, uh, and, and we could also see the same thing took place in the public sector during the 60s and 70s, um, public sector being government workers at the state, local, and federal level. Only a few percent of the workers were organized before 1960, and by the mid late 1970s, 35 to 40% of workers were organized. In the American Federation of Teachers, which was the main um, union for teachers in 1960, had two limping chapters, one in Chicago and one in New York, small amount of membership. In late 1960, the New York um, teachers Went on 50,000 of them went on strike. Um, teachers all over the country were totally excited. And within a few months after the strike, every major city in the United States had a strong um, American Federation of Teachers local in which teachers joined. So sometimes it's um, events that excite all the others across an industry. And, you know, some of us were hoping that if by some chance the Amazon workers at Bessemer had been successful and the odds were against them for doing this, that this might have been a stimulus to workers all over the Amazon chain to uh, organize. And something like this still could happen. It happened the Flint... Um, sit-down strike December 1936 to the end of January 1937 in Flint, Michigan, um, 75 miles north, northwest of Detroit, was the center of the General Motors empire. 
when workers seized plants and had their sit-down strike and eventually won, this stimulated really millions of workers around the country to organize and strike. Um, There were several hundred sit-down strikes following the Flint strike in Detroit alone. And this was every place. All the Woolworths stores, which were the sort of out of date, but were the main sort of, um, I don't know what the equivalent would be today, five and 10 stores. um, Right. The the drug stores or sort of general kind of store. Sure. And these were mostly had women working in them. And in these, all these, these stores in Detroit, uh, workers seized, sat down inside, seized control, locked it up and took control of the store and put forward their demands. So this one particular strike stimulated lots of, um, other workers to organize. So that tends to be the way that union growth um, and activity takes place in huge waves. And in between, nothing seems to happen. We've had a while now with nothing seeming to happen. But it's hard to know when these explosions of growth will take place. Uh, But historically, they have taken place. So we'll see. I could ask you more questions, but I think that is a very appropriate way to end this episode. So, Mike, I want to thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks as ever to my producer, Sarah Hurd, to Jacobin, to Mike Goldfield for coming on the show, and to Nate Roos for the music. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. Bye. Bye.